Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am on the line with Nathan Kutz. Nathan is Professor of Applied Mathematics, Electrical Engineering, and Physics at the University of Washington. Nathan, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. I had a chance to see a talk you did at the Prepare AI conference here in St. Louis uh, a few weeks ago, and I thought it was a great, uh, great presentation. Uh, it was on machine learning to discover physics and engineering principles, and we are going to uh, dive pretty deeply into that. But before we do, uh, Nathan, take a few minutes to uh, introduce us to your your background and how you got involved in machine learning and artificial intelligence. Sure. Uh, so we'll be happy to do that. So I come from a, a pretty standard, let's say, physics applied math training. Uh, I did my Ph.D. back in the uh, early to mid-90s uh, and then went off to do a postdoc at uh, at Princeton University jointly with Bell Labs. And at the time, uh, I was doing a lot of just standard modeling of physical systems. I was particularly interested in optical systems. Uh, at that time at Bell Labs, we were doing long-haul communications. So the idea there was to, of course, write down some governing equations. And typically, this was some version of Maxwell's equations for understanding how light propagates down fiber optic cables. And so I would call this coming from the, the forward modeling perspective, which is you, you write down some set of equations, you derive them, and then you do lots of simulations, uh, and then you build your understanding in, in, that, in that architecture. And of course, there's some data that's collected, uh, but back in the 90s, the data wasn't the same as what we think about today. And so I spent a long time there really building out sort of that, that perspective and applying it to various other types of problems once I came to the University of Washington. Uh, and about 10 years ago, I got very interested in using some of these dimensionality reduction techniques that were being used in the fluid, fluid dynamics community. And there it's called proper orthogonal decomposition, which really was the same as PCA. And everybody has these different terms for for the same thing. So then okay. I started realizing. But you said it was called proper orthogonality. Uh, proper orthogonal decomposition. Proper orthogonal decomposition. Okay. And then, and interestingly enough, the atmospheric scientists called it empirical orthogonal functions. So <laughs> I started realizing that everybody's doing the same thing, which is taking your data and maybe doing a little bit of mild preprocessing, but running it through the singular value decomposition. Um, and I started applying it initially to optics problems and started realizing that, oh, my God, this is an amazing idea. Uh, and, in fact, it was kind of interesting that I had no idea that this whole other community existed. Um, and that's how I started getting into the idea of using data methods over towards more physics engineering type problems. Um, and since that time, then I brought in all of this architecture borrowed from the ML AI type communities around uh, model discovery, regression, uh, dimensionality reduction. And that has completely changed the way I think about these problems. And it's also allowing me to start thinking about um, 
using these ideas towards control architectures. And that was ultimately the goal we had in the engineering sciences. It's always going to come down to a, some kind of control theory. Um, but this allowed uh, my group and my collab collaborators to start thinking about framing things in terms of control. So since that time, we just are really integrating these engineering systems with machine learning architectures. And that's that's how I've continued to develop in this direction is to to use both perspectives. The context that you presented on, if I remember correctly, was in controlling, was it lasers or like controlling the um, like laser coherence or something like that? Uh, yeah, you, so, yeah, yeah, I can speak to it. So, so, uh, and so we were interested in my, a lot of my expertise comes in, in this, in this laser physics, which I had started back all the way back in sort of the late nineties, uh, working on, uh, laser physics. And one of the interesting things was that, um, over this time period, this is a big commercial market, uh, uh, laser technologies are, uh, I mean, the amount of money in that field is, is enormous. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in sales for lasers because they're pretty much ubiquitous, right? They're from your supermarket scanner all the way to uh, what's emerging LIDAR technologies. So lasers have become this uh, really important technological piece in regards to sensor technologies. And so the data coming from this is quite large and we'd like to tune them. So one of the things that I noticed was that people were like, trying to tune them, sort of hand tune these, these lasers for performance and then environmentally sealing it. So whatever you did to tune it, you'd lock it in and you'd sell it. And if anything happened, then you'd have to have your rep come out and fix the laser. And then I was thinking, well, this is a lot easier than a self-driving car. <laughs> in fact, nobody gets hurt. Uh, and it's, and it's only a few knobs. And that, that was the remarkable thing. This community has been very slow on the uptake I feel, in terms of adopting this technology. So we've been really pushing it out there. So one of the things I highlighted at the talk was, here's an architecture, a software architecture that you could implement today towards essentially a laser system that would tune itself. And not only would tune itself, it would learn all the possible behaviors it has available to itself. Um, and even if something happened, someone hit the laser, and so you've changed the par parameter space a little bit, this thing could learn its new parameters and learn how to tune itself under this new conditions. If I can interrupt, let's maybe take yeah. a step back and talk through what it means to tune a laser. What are those those knobs that uh, are, are used in tuning them? Sure, sure. So the laser that I've mostly worked on is a it's a it's a fiber optic laser. So it's it's nice. It's it has it's its own cavity. It's just the laser the the fiber itself contains the light. And the way that the, the mo what's called mode locking happens, in other words, you want to create a nice, very high-intensity pulse of light. And in order to shape the light, there are a set of polarizers and some wave plates that you can turn, uh, you know, you can rotate them through 360 degrees. And it turns out, as you turn these set of wave plates and polarizers, you get very different behavior out of the, out of the laser cavity. And so um, it's a pretty, you know, there's about five knobs. There's three wave plates, a polarizer, and also the amount of pumping or energy put into the cavity. And with these five parameters, you can get uh, either very exceptionally high-performing lasers or you can get just garbage, a, a completely incoherent light that's mean, worthless. Uh, 
So the idea is to use these five parameters uh, to tune this thing into not only a very coherent, ultra-short pulse with very high peak intensities, um, but among all the set of, uh, there's these islands of stable behaviors, which one should you be on to give you the very highest performance uh, possible for the fiber and for the um, gain you have available to you? The approach you took was an interesting one. It was ultimately, you know, in terms of the spectrum of machine learning applications, it was it was fairly simple. But the the way you constructed the problem, you know, is what lent it to that simple approach. Can you kind of talk through the the problem construction and and ultimately the solution? Yeah, sure. So uh, of course, the first thing I I guess one way I think about machine learning in general is the first thing you have to posit is some kind of uh, loss function, right? So this is mm-hmm. this is the. I mean, I think of all of machine learning AI is just really just some giant optimization problem. And so the main thing with an optimization is just figuring out what's your objective function. The nice thing for us in the laser system is uh, it's very clear what the objective function was. We wanted uh, a very coherent, high intensity pulse. Uh, now, interestingly enough. In optics, you you don't actually measure the electric field. You le- you measure the intensity of the electric field. So you lose phase information. So right away, you're limited in terms of what your measurement space is. Uh, and there's also one other interesting thing. You might say, I want the maximum energy in the cavity, but that has actually not the best objective function available to you. It turns out, if you just make the objective function the energy, then what it will do is the best performance of the laser cavity will put you at the edge of instability. So it's basically it'll walk you up this. Uh, it'll walk you up to the edge of a cliff, and the cliff, of course, has the best performance. But you move slightly one way, and you lose everything. Uh, and so we found, formulated a new objective function, which was based upon not only do I want a lot of energy in the cavity, I also want to constrain the laser bandwidth. So we were able to construct. A, uh, an objective function that had both the bandwidth and the energy, and that actually allowed us to keep a boundary away from the instability. So once we had that objective function... By bandwidth, are you ultimately talking about coherence? or? But you said you, did, you weren't able to directly measure coherence, if I remember correctly. Well, so we can't measure the coherence directly, but we can measure the energy. We can also measure through the spectrogram just what the total uh, frequency content is. Okay. So when you look on a, a, an oscilloscope, you'll be able to see immediately what the band, the total bandwidth is. And so you're trying, you know, for a very short pulse, you have a nice broad bandwidth um, pulse. So typically for these laser systems, they, they can produce somewhere around uh, 30 nanometers of bandwidth. So it's pr- it's pretty broadband. It's around it's around telecom wavelengths, and so it's a great light source this way. Um, so we we were able to, we, we so we know then that what we were trying to do, roughly speaking, is you know produce this, and so we were able to construct the objective function. That was the number one step initially was just to simply figure out, given for what we think we want, how do we actually mathematically construct this for an algorithm to go after the search. Right. right to go after the optimization, so we were able to, do, and and also make sure that we stay away from the edge of instability for physical systems. Right, it it really matters that you've got to have a cushion away from the boundary. You mm-hmm. can't just walk up a gradient and off a cliff. Otherwise, it's it's worthless technology. 
And did you consider, uh, as opposed to the objective function with two components, energy and bandwidth, uh, some formulation that tries to you know, maximize energy, but then back it off, or maybe even out, even outside of the machine learning, maximize energy, but then in the implementation, back it off a little bit. Yeah, we 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 uh, we we had various perspectives on this. We we automatically could do something like this, which is once we have the learning, we could back off of these things. But it turned out it was so easy to use this scope trace. So in other words, that was a, that was probably the easiest measurement of all mm. um, that we used that directly as well. Okay, this is a perfect measurement because that's something that is is actually probably the easiest thing for to to actually make a measurement of you. It's actually very difficult to even measure the light pulse itself in the cavity because typically these pulses are in the 100 femtosecond regime. So this is ultra fast optics. And so measurement of the light pulse itself requires you either to put on some kind of very expensive measurement device. And of course, you don't want that in a practical setting because you'd like a cheap device. Um, and so we just use the bandwidth itself as a, as, as a proxy. Okay. Okay. And then once you have that, you can uh, now you can set the thing free. It's got five input knobs, these four three wave plates, a polarizer, the gain, and you just say, okay, go look around. <laughs> um, and the nice thing is these parameters. So this is another nice feature. These wave plates and polarizers, right? They 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 they're two pi periodic, right? You rotate a polarizer around, it goes around two pi. You're back where you started. Um, so it allowed us to do what we call the toroidal search, right? So you could start spinning these wave plates and polarizers at irrationally related frequencies. And what this will do, it was will cover some kind of a hyper torus. And so it's a very effective search strategy because if you have parameters that don't wrap around themselves, right? So the slowest, the slowest uh, search, when it goes around 2 pi, all the other ones have gone around even... Uh, multiples times it allows you to map out this this torus structure and look in the torus where the good regions are for for these for these pulse solutions there was an element that i recall from the presentation that was not just that you were able to optimize this objective function but that you were also able to do it in such a way that gave you insight into the underlying physical principles can you uh are, are we at that point in, in kind of the, the story yet or? Yeah, we can certainly talk about that because I think that's actually um, one of the more exciting places. So we started with this idea of machine learning on the laser for control, which was, you know what, if this thing can just tune it, we're fine. It can, it can be a sort of a, uh, an AI agent sitting on top of, of, of sort of these machines and you just give it the knobs, input, output, and get it going. Mm-hmm. But the where this led to was this idea of data-driven discovery of governing equations. So we started thinking about if I measure a system and I don't know its underlying physics. So a lot of the models I had spent time with in the past, I actually knew the governing physics. Uh, optical fields are governed by Maxwell's equations. And of course, they have these quantum interactions. So we can write down these governing equations. And, you know, we've had a lot of experience with them. We know that they are true uh, uh, in in these regimes we're operating in. And so we can do, in some sense, first principles modeling. But another part of my life that developed over the last five to 10 years is looking at neuroscience. So now you'd measure from the brain. And we don't know the governing equations of the brain. 
we don't have an F equals MA formulation. In other words, here are the governing equations. Um, we have posited various models for what neurons do, but on some level, you're interrogating a system where you fundamentally don't know the governing equations. And so what we started to, what we set out to do then is to start figuring out, is there a way from measurements alone, time series measurements, can we infer the governing equations? And the beauty of this is it all comes down to just AX equal to B. So uh, we're excited because that's, you know, I like to tell everybody that's the height of applied math. If you actually understand AX equal to B, that's something because AX equal to B is a lot harder than, than it looks. You know, when I think of a Maxwell's equation, it's a lot more complicated than a linear a linear equation. How Talk a little bit about that background of how you kind of equate these ultimately complex and, and higher order equations to a linear relationship. Sure, you bet. So, so the way we've formulated the problem is we take time series measurements of some dynamical systems. So we think of these things as systems we're measuring, they're changing in time, they're evolving. And we would like to discover the equations of motion. Um, so one of the, my backgrounds mathematically that really framed everything I did application-wise was in dynamical systems. And the basic structure for that is to look at dx dt, the change of some vector x is equal to f of x. So it could be a nonlinear function of x. It could be very complicated. It could even be have parametric dependencies. Um, so that's the simplest thing. dx dt equals f of x. And this is, a, this is already framing what we want to do and in a sense that the standard way we think about when we pick up a textbook on E&M or quantum, we're given f. We know what it is. Mm-hmm. Now what we're trying to do is say, you give me time series measurement X, can I tell you what F was? What was the F that's consistent with the data I, I read? So, so DX DT is the first derivative of uh, with respect to time. And what you're doing is you're taking, uh, you've got some time series measurements that you're taking and you're using them to ultimately work your way back to the underlying function from these right. time series measurements. Exactly. And so the way we do this is we simply say the following. We say, well, okay, dx dt. So let's call it x dot. So that's the rate of change of time. Mm-hmm. So if you give me time series data, I can differentiate it. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you gave me x, and that means I can compute x dot. Okay, that's first. And x dot is going to be the b vector in ax equal to b. Now let's talk about what the a is going to be. So now what we're going to do is say, well, what could the right-hand side be? Well, the right-hand side could be a lot. There's lots of possibilities, and I don't know what they are. So what I'm going to do is just make up a library of all kinds of potential right-hand sides. Well, maybe the right-hand side depends on x or x squared or, or x cubed or sine x or e to the x. It's only limited by my imagination. So the idea is typically to put in a bunch of potential functions which could be right-hand side terms. So the matrix A we're going to build is the following. Each column will be a, pot- a candidate right-hand side functions, a candidate then f- for describing what F is. Okay, So I could put in thousands of candidates, and that's what creates the columns of the matrix A, and each row is the time measurement. So if you give me X, I can compute X squared. I can compute sine X. 
over time. So the rows will be time, columns will be potential functions that might be in the right-hand side. That's the matrix A. So what we're gonna do when we do this regression, this AX equal to B, is just say, well, here's a matrix A, the right-hand side B I have, which is the time derivative, solve it. And generally, you're gonna have a lot of time measurements. So this is gonna be a system which is highly overdetermined, and I want a solution, and here's the key. I want a sparse solution. Mm -hmm. So what's going to happen is when you do this regression, it's going to select out the smallest number of columns that it has to use so that X dot is equal to F of X. So, and when it does this, it selects out the physical terms. So for instance, what this will do for you is if you measure a fluid flow, just take measurements of the time series of a vorticity of a fluid flow, what comes out in this regression process is the Navier-Stokes equations. If you were to look at trajectories of a flying object, thrown object, what would come out would be F equals MA. It, re it recovers all of these systems, all the canonical models out of mathematical physics. You just give me the time series measurements, it recovers back the governing equations all by this simple regression of a linear system where the matrix contains all these potential library terms and by promoting a sparse solution, it just gives you back your solution. Yeah, so I, I thought this part was really clever. Yeah, again, as you as you just said it, you you are solving a, just a simple linear regression, but your your terms are, you know, they can be anything. They can be quadratics and cubics and uh, exponentials and all these different things. What, what is this? You know, in a lot of ways, it's like a, a decomposition. Do you consider this part of what you did to be? Uh, kind of a novel contribution of your research or is that, you know, is it really more, you know, standard or well uh, explored and you're applying it to these types of physical problems? As, as far as we've seen, this is the first application of this towards really discovering dynamics itself okay, um, and getting out dynamical systems. What's, what's kind of remarkable about it is in some sense um, – how to say it in a good way. Um, we had no business discovering this. Why this wasn't <laughs> discovered 30 years ago. It's so simple, right? That yeah. like, you, you know, it's like, why didn't someone do this 30 years ago? They should have, they should have, they really should have. And it's really interesting. I think from the physics community and the engineering community, and I'm going to talk personally for a minute here. If I look back at my educational experience, whenever we solved under or over determined systems that were AX equal to B, you just did it with least square fitting. Mm -hmm. There was no concept of sparse solutions there. You know, it's interesting because Tip Shirani has a paper on the lasso method from 1996, which have gotten a ton of traction, this basically variable selection technique. But that never made it over to like this physics engineering community. And in some sense, the technology has been just sitting there. And we just finally made the observation, well, wait a minute, this actually can work here. And look at this. It actually works. And you can mm -hmm. just run it on your laptop. It's not like this. Uh, it's not one of these neuro, you know, neural networks or, or even another competing technology developed by Hod Lipson at, at, at uh, he's now at Columbia. Uh, they had done some, something similar, but they had done a genetic search. So, it, you know, they basically would 
uh, put a genetic algorithm. Let's posit some right-hand side terms. Which ones are best? Let's keep them. Let's modify them and have them evolve until we find this. So it was fairly expensive computationally because uh, it was really going through tons of possibility versus this regression is extremely simple. It just it's fast. It's effective. It's very robust. Um, and since that time, we've been starting to use this on uh, – more complicated problems where we don't know the answer. So for all the problems that we know the answer, which are these canonical models out of the mathematical physics engineering community, we've been able to discover them all. So we've been, we've been able to sort of, in some sense, validate or cross-validate the method. And now we're moving it on to biological applications. Um, and one of the exciting areas we've been trying this on is uh, the C. elegans worm, which is a, a one millimeter worm. It's got 302 neurons. Um, and when you watch these neurons, they can now do whole brain imaging of this little worm. It's, it's, it's amazing what people can do with this worm. We are now starting to understand that when the worm is forward crawling or backward crawling, there's very low dimensional structure that's being executed there. And what we really want to understand is the control architecture and the governing equations of how 302 neurons coordinate their dynamics to produce very simple dynamics, which are functional across the entire connectome of that of that worm. So this is an exciting way forward because we there is no there is no truth in this case. Nobody has the right answer, right? So this is going to give us the ability to get towards understanding biological neural systems with a very new architecture, which seems to be incredibly robust and easy to use. Hmm. Uh so I want to dig a little bit further into uh, the the biological applications, but I, I, before we do that, I wanted to uh, connect a couple of points that you mentioned. You mentioned the idea of sparsity as being key to what you've done here, and the 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 idea there is that if you you know you collect all these data points. Uh, even if the equations are perfectly expressed in simple underlying relationships between these these terms, uh, you've got noise, you've got other things, and the result of your analysis, your optimization, is going to likely include uh, some very small fractional terms of things that don't necessarily need to be there. And so what you, you, you mentioned the, the lasso work in passing. If I remember correctly, what you did was you implied lasso to, uh, to bring out that sparsity to, to reduce those terms. Is that correct? Yeah. So we use something, uh, lasso like. So what we actually did, uh, and this is, uh, it may be taken as a criticism of lasso. It's, it's interesting. If you really look at what people do. People tend not to use lasso directly, but something like uh, elastic net. So uh, lasso itself is a little bit unstable in terms of actually finding for you the right sparsity pattern that you're looking for. Um, and so elastic net helps regularize this process. Uh, and But we actually avoid those altogether. What we do is we do a sequential least square thresholding. So uh, essentially, least squares is extremely fast. But what least squares will do is says everybody participates. So there's nobody that's zero. However, there's a bunch of terms that, well, you know, it depends on how you define zero. Is 10 to minus six zero? Uh, so we start doing this in the sense that we say it, it works incredibly well where you can just do least squares, which is very fast. All the terms below some threshold you throw away. 
And then you do it again with the terms that are left over, and this thing converges right back, right to the solution you want. Um, so it's, it's in some sense a more stable way. We found it to be stable. We're working actually right now on convergence proofs around this, but we found it to be a very stable, robust way to do uh, sparse regression. Um, and so it's lasso-like, but it doesn't inherit some of the known problems of lasso itself. How do you end up setting the threshold? If you're working on modeling something that's got a, a constant, like a Planck's constant, that's ultimately very, very small, how do you make sure you're not getting rid of important things? Yeah, so that's always, that's a great question. I mean, so what we've been doing so far for most of the models that we have is we will do some kind of cross-validation to uh, for this uh, threshold level. And actually, it's interesting, the threshold level, um, we haven't done this yet, but probably the most effective way to do it is to have a an adaptive threshold level. So if you're on threshold, if you're going to apply the threshold in your iteration number three, it should probably be different than on iteration number two. But even if you don't do something like that, you can typically learn it through cross-validation what the sparsity, what the threshold level should be. Um, but that is your one tuning knob. And by the way, it's very very similar to lasso, where in the lasso, you have to tune uh, what this L1 penalty strength is. So typically, there's this lambda parameter where you can make it bigger or smaller. And the bigger you make it, the, the more it enforces sparsity. And that's very similar to the threshold here, which is um, it's, it's, it's a tuning knob that all of these sparsity promoting techniques seem to carry around. And again, there are ways that people suggest or argue you can kind of cross validate to get the right values for these things. Um, but it's still a little bit of a, still a little bit of alchemy on that one. Okay. Uh, and so you were starting to introduce us into to some of your future application of this, moving away from these underlying physical control systems where we, we know a lot of the equations to something that is uh, more complex and unknown. And, and in this case, the the relationship between neurons and the C elegans. Is that the right way to say it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um and I would say more broadly, the thing that we're really trying to go after sort of in, in, in sort of the, the grand challenge problem of this, uh, I still remain very rooted in thinking about engineering and physical applications. Um, but one of the things that's become increasingly clear to me is what we've developed uh, over the last centuries uh, is the ability to do exceptionally well with what I call uniscale physics problems. In other words, I can write down one set of equations and it models the whole system. Mm. But it's increasingly clear that a lot of these complex systems we look at that we want to understand today, they're multi-scale systems. There's a fast scale that is doing some kind of physical process that's connected to some mesoscale, which is connected to some macro scale, and by the way, they're all talking to each other, and they're all very different physics at these levels. And yet that is the dynamics that really produces the manifestation of the, of the dynamics on the measurement space you may be looking at. So for instance, you may not care about the micro scale because you're watching it from the macro scale. But whatever happened in the micro scale is, in fact, feeding that information up 
And you need to, if you're going to model the system well, you have to understand how these different scales are talking to each other. So it really requires us to start moving away from uniscale physics models, where I just write everything down and do simulations, to actually there's different physics at each level. I've got to figure out how they're connected together and discover different physics models at each level. And that's going to be the, the way we make progress forward. At least that's those. And by the way, biology is a perfect representation of this. Even in the C. elegans, there's quite a different number of different time scales that ultimately produce uh, time and spatial scales that ultimately produce the thing that I'm most interested in, which is this macroscopic behavior of the worm crawling forward or crawling backward or doing what are called omega turns, where it turns its body around. Um, and the only way to understand that completely is to understand this architecture of multi-scale uh, uh, physics. And so to make that a little bit more concrete, we're talking about, you know, one scale might represent the kind of the chemical, the underlying chemical reactions, and then there's a scale above that that's representing uh, neurological activity and connections and things like that. Um, yeah. Yep. And then finally, at the top scale, how the entire set of neurons are sort of evolving together in a functional form, right? All being driven by the chemistry, which drives the voltage activity of neurons, which then drives this bigger functionality of muscle activation. Um, yeah, that's exactly the cascade. And you know that the muscle activation is a very different physics than the chemical activations, right? These are different physical processes. And you can't just write one model down that says, you know, and, and again, I think the discovery we've made in physics, right, we have Maxwell's equation, we have quantum mechanics, we have the fluid dynamics, Navier-Stokes of fluids. We've done impressive things, right? We can build airplanes, we can build iPhones, you know, quantum-based device devices. Um, the kind of stuff we can do is quite remarkable, but we, we've kind of hit a wall there in terms of our modeling capabilities. It, it strikes me that the you know in the physical case you know we've got these multi-scale problems do exist maybe we just don't understand them because of their complexity or the number of scales or things like that meaning you know at some level there's quantum mechanics and that and there are uh i'm thinking even for for simple kind of mechanics problems mm -hmm. you know there's you know maybe even an infinite number of levels you know ranging to you know, atomic cohesion and all kinds of stuff. I don't know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Are you getting a question in there somewhere? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> no, I, I, but it, it actually, it's interesting you asked this, right? Because I think the way I think of multiple scale physics, like, you know, if, if I was going to push a table mm -hmm. and, uh, and see how it moved, I push it with a certain force. Um, you know, typically we would do that. We draw like a, a vector diagram. Okay. Your force is this you know, this much at this angle, and you could compute through F equals MA what's going to happen to the table movement. Uh, an alternative to this would be I'd model the atomic interaction between my hand pushing the table and the atoms of the table. Of course, <laughs> nobody does this, but right. there are systems where you're required to do that. You mm -hmm. really need to do that kind of, so especially molecular dynamics uh, simulations, this is what they're trying to do, right? Really model the molecular interactions that produce some macro scale um, structure that's important to, to, to see. Okay. Okay. So, so that's where we're headed, I think. Interesting. And so how far have you gotten in applying this technique to, to these kinds of multi-scale problems? 
So, so far, uh, we have a first paper that just came out, it's on the archive, where we did essentially some toy problems uh, where we've had mixed dynamics, a fast scale and a slow scale dynamical system, and we asked the following question. If I just gave you the data and I'm just measuring this joint dynamics together, what would I get? Uh, do I actually, can I extract them from each other? Can I, is there a way to disambiguate what's going on in the fast scale from the slow scale? And could I really discover these two dynamics? And the initial evidence is suggest, yes, you can. In fact, you can discover uh, a slow and a fast dynamics. You can even discover how they're connected together. So we've done this on some, let's call it the baby toy problems. I mean, that's where you always have to start. I always like to start with something where we can test the truth against it, right? Um, one of the things that makes me uncomfortable in some of the application areas of some of the these methods that I've seen is people will do hard problems and sometimes they'll neglect to do the very simple problem to see if it even just works on the simple problem. And I, I never go forward unless I can get it to work on a simple problem because if you can't get that to work, it certainly is not going to say anything about a hard problem. Right. Um, and so I think the ability to test bed it and and see if it's it works is important so we've got that first result along that direction and then our hope is to continue building this way um and then also acquiring good data sets is 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 a really important thing you know getting a good data set from either physical or biological system where there's good time resolution good spatial resolution where you can really bring these methods on we're, we're getting better and better about how to handle bad data but you know, at the end of the day, there's a great deal of pressure. If you want to build a good model, you need good data, right? Um, I think that's one of the really big advantages of computer vision, uh, right? You can, you can bring in a bunch of really good data sets, right? Here's pictures. They're high-quality HD cameras, um, and uh, that helps a lot. They're not – imagine if you were trying to train ImageNet where all the images were corrupt and blurred, you know, how well would it do now on classification tasks? I think it would be much more challenging. Uh, and the same thing for us is, is the case, is we want to be able to have really high quality of data initially. And, and you know, the biologists are, are getting their job done. It's amazing the revolutions you're seeing in biology in terms of the kind of recordings they can do, the, 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 just the vast sheer quantity of what they're able to extract now from, uh, even in the C. elegans worm, to be able to image this thing in real time where you're seeing the whole brain region, 150 neurons just lighting up as it's doing its its motion is is just unbelievable. This is something that 10 years ago I don't think anybody thought was possible, and here we are. We've got it. Um, so it's really exciting. Hmm. Uh, so you started to answer one of the questions I had, which was for these different scales for C. elegans, where the data was coming from. It sounds like at some level – uh, at one of the levels you described is coming from imagery, um, but the, is there also a level uh, beneath that that is looking at actual chemical activity? And uh, I imagine a level above uh, where we're talking about physical motion is coming from imagery as well? Yeah, so the, the motion comes from imagery. A lot of times you can easily just see it moving around. There's the mm -hmm. actual imaging of the neurons. Uh, one level down from that would be electrophysiology recordings where you actually stick in a voltage probe into neurons and you monitor those directly. And they do have this available in uh, monkeys and rats and other creatures like this where you can actually get some direct recordings from neurons to see how they're spiking. 
And so there, of course, is a little harder because, you know, uh, even if even in your best days, you might be able to get, uh, you know, a, a tetrode fork in the brain with the four prongs of the fork have four four recordings each. So you could maybe get up to 16. Uh, and so we can do this, for instance, with insects and tenelobes of, of moths that we, we work with a gentleman over here in biology, Jeff Riffle, who has this. So there is more and more data becoming available, but it's still hard to acquire. And in humans, of course, it's, it's very difficult, right? Because you, you can't just go in and put probes in people. They have done this, of course, with certain people. Like, for instance, we are working with people with, uh, where there are ECOG recordings from the brain, often a big array. But these were from patients who needed this for, because they had such severe epilepsy that you know, they, were, they put this in to monitor that. And as a byproduct, we actually have great data to collect on the brain itself. So we'll see what the future holds in terms of what it's. I think it's just remarkable how they keep coming up with new and novel ways. I think what we want to do is be prepared on our end to have the mathematical architecture in place so that when they do produce these data sets, we can essentially squeeze out as much as possible, as much learning and science as possible. I think that's what we're really after is the, is the, is the mathematical engine so that as these data sets come in, we can we have a new way to start interrogating that data and discovering underlying biophysical principles or physical principles. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, Nathan, I really appreciate you taking the time to walk us through this. It's really, really interesting work, and I'm looking forward to kind of keeping tabs on it and seeing what else you guys, you all come up with. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, been a pleasure, and hopefully, hopefully everybody who listened got something out of this. So. Absolutely. I'm sure they will. Thanks, Nathan. Okay. Take care. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. For more information on Nathan or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 162. Don't forget to visit twimlai.com slash nominate to cast your vote for us in the People's Choice Podcast Awards. And as always, thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.